This is Juror 13. You are Juror 13. Tonight you'll hear interviews, opinions, and reports. Then you will have an opportunity to decide. This is Malice, Money, Motorcycles, and Murder, the Randy Stevens case, Savannah, Georgia. Status, currently unsolved, 21 years. Juror 13 is brought to you in partnership with Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is offering an $80,000 reward for tips leading to the successful capture and prosecution of the person or persons responsible for the murder of Randy Stevens. At the end of this program, learn how to contact Crime Stoppers anonymously to help solve this case. The ideas, insights, and theories expressed in the following program are opinions and are not necessarily those of the producers. All persons are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Welcome to Juror 13. I'm Tom Mullady. The investigation of the Randy Stevens murder has been both revealing and provocative. Alas, it's important to remember that although the families have been polarized by suspicion and accusation, that they're unified in one horrible truth, that the man that they loved, the guy that was the anchor to their family, is murdered and gone. So that we may not lose ourselves in fact-checking and evidence-seeking, tonight we'll start with a look into the celebration of Randy Stevens' life. Unfortunately, that will be done at his funeral, as the family gathered together to say the long goodbye. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Sandra Stevens Smalls, who, as you probably know by now, is Randy's little sister. Uh, Sandra was the first person I interviewed and has been instrumental from that point on in helping me to gather leads, paperwork, uh, any evidence that was related to the case that was already introduced, uh, the Emmys reports. Um, she's relentless and determined to find out who did this to her brother. Like Linda, like Bobby, or Derek Duncan even, she never failed to pick up the phone or to call or to meet if she had something helpful to say. But the way that Sandra's experience with this whole tragic situation began is a lot different than the others. She was hours away at a business conference in Atlanta, and this is how things unfolded for her when she learned of Randy's death. The morning that Randy was shot, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, I, um, during that time, I was working for the Fairfield Inn as a general manager, and we had our yearly meetings in Atlanta, and I was driven to Atlanta by my assistant GM, Kathy Morgan. We drove up that night, and the day after, that Thursday morning, I received a call from my aunt, um, Ollie Thomas, around 5.30, between 5.30 and 6, and regular conversation. Um, hey there, how you doing? Um, hey back, um, where are you? I'm like, I'm in Atlanta. I said, what's wrong? And she said there was a robbery at Randy's house. Randy's been shot and he's on his way to the hospital. Mm. Sadly, there came two faded calls from then-husband Nathan Smalls Jr. The first call he called me, he said he was on the way to the hospital. And that's when I told him, let me know how Randy's doing mm -hmm. and do not allow me to come back without knowing the condition of my brother. Right. Um, 
And then he called back, and that's when he was at the hospital with my family. And he wanted to know who was with me, and I said I was by myself. And, um, and I just said to him, because I heard in his voice, I said, tell me. And he was like, I need you to be with someone. And I was like, no, I just need to know. Just tell me. And he told me that Randy got killed. Mm -hmm. Take your time. <sighs> Try to imagine what it would have been like to be five hours away and have to hear this news. To be alone in a crowd of your peers who are trying to be helpful, who are trying to be supportive, all the while trying to navigate whether flights or driving are the best option to get back in time. Driving was the only way. She had a friend to take her, but then she had five hours in that car. It was almost surreal, but it wasn't. Only thing I wanted to do was walk out that hotel door. And I just walked, and I walked, and I just walked. And people joined me and they said that we were trying to get you on a flight to get you back to Savannah. Don't know if we can get you back on a flight quicker than driving you back. Right. Um, are you able to get in the car and be driven back? And I was like, whatever you do, just get me back. And so Kathy drove me back. Upon arriving in Savannah, Sandra asked to be taken to Ali Thomas' house, where people were beginning to gather. When I returned to Savannah, I went to Ali Thomas' house. Um, she lives in Savannah, still at the same residence mm -hmm. off of Stavison Street, because that's where my mom was. Okay. And that's where my family was gathered. And I wanted to go see my mom. I wanted to see my dad. My dad was not there. Daddy was home. And so I, Kathy took me there, and I remember walking into Aunt Ollie's house and saw my mom on the couch, and she was just screaming and crying because Randy was killed. Some of um, the family went to go be with my dad at our house in Midway, but the majority of us was at Aunt Ollie's house. And I want to say mid-afternoon, my mom wanted to go see about Linda, who's mm -hmm. Randy's wife, and Linda was at Bobby's house. From what I can gather from speaking with Sandra, her initial suspicion of Linda began in the moment she entered Bobby's house. You have to realize that unlike Linda or anyone that was still in shock from the immediacy of their experience, Sandra has been in a car for five hours, trapped alone with the knowledge and waiting to let it all out. What she encountered as she and her mother entered Bobby's house may have started to shape her feelings pretty quickly. We walk into Bobby's house. Linda was sitting with a legal pad with this um, gentleman named Doug Fryson who raced against my brother, motorcycles against my brother. And Linda had a legal pad and she was writing down, this is what I heard her say, we can sell the purple motorcycle for $20,000 and we can sell the black motorcycle for $25,000 and we can sell the transmissions for $7,000 each. And she continued the conversation as we were coming down the hallway. 
Now, remember, we heard Bobby talk about this same situation before. A little bit different version, but the same concerns. When I got to my house, uh, Linda was sitting and... Who else was in the The gentleman that was sitting by her was one of our race and family members, um, Doug Fryson, mm-hmm. and... He had his phone plugged in my wall unit, charging it. Mm-hmm. Linda was sitting in a chair. He was next to Linda. And they had a pad, a yellow pad. I, I, I would assume that Doug was telling her what certain parts that Randy had, the bike, the value of it. And she was writing down things that she could sell. So you believe that that's what was occurring an hour after they got out of the house? Yes. When I spoke with Linda and Mr. Frierson, neither one of them could recollect that event. Let me put it this way, in more specific language, they stated to me plainly that it just never happened. Now, there's no proof of it one way or the other. However, I can see how Linda was beginning to be suspected Whether it was in that instant that it happened or whether it grew with mounting frustration, it happened. Amidst all of this, now the onerous tasks loom. The mechanics of death, the unfortunate business of casket choices and funeral arrangements, burial mathematics. It's all laden with emotion and it's attended to with heavy-hearted attention to detail. And they, despite their mounting differences, have to seek to accomplish this together. The first major challenge for all of them was to gather together at the funeral home and make choices regarding Randy's burial. We had an argument at the funeral home. It was like, it was like I was, everybody was talking. I only expected for my in-laws to be there. My mother-in-law, father-in-law, sister and brother-in-law, and my um brother-in-law's wife there there was an aunt there I can't remember who I was there but I didn't think about it then my family was like wow all these people and everybody's saying what they wanted and I'm like I'm not getting a chance to say what I want I'm the wife and so I said well can I have some respect can I say what I want y'all tell me what y'all want I haven't said what I want how I want to do this and the funeral director looked at me and said, well, you have to find whatever you say goes, Miss Stevens. Now, argument, that, that got ugly. My, my father-in-law, he's very sweet. He got upset. He said, I, I knew him before anybody. Of course you knew him for me. He's your son. But you got to look at my side of the thing, too. That's your son. That was my husband. I loved him just as much as they did. It was a lot of emotions. We all calmed down. The hostility left the table, and we were able to talk calmly. We went and looked at the caskets. Now, I asked my father, I said, would you pick the suit for your son? Daddy Page picked the suit. I picked the casket. Sandra also described a tense and volatile environment. She, however, has more specific recollections that I had not heard before. Now, again, I have to interject here that we have some relatives that will corroborate what you're about to hear, but I could not verify the story in complete accuracy. The specifics in relationship to the threats and the accusations, however, were plentiful. So we go to the funeral home. 
to make arrangements for Randy's funeral. Everything was hurting. It was hurtful, but it was something that we had to do. What upset me that day was that Linda had a photo album. And in that photo album, there were not pictures. There was insurance policies that she brought to show my parents that she was the beneficiary of every insurance policy that Randy had. My parents did not come to the funeral home concerned about insurance policies. They came to that funeral home to make arrangements for their son. And when she said to them, look at this, and I remember their names being scratched out and an initial, and she was a beneficiary, and she wanted to prove a point to them that she was the wife and she was the beneficiary of the money. And I said to her, you weren't about the beneficiary of the insurance policy. Tell my parents that you killed him. If you want to talk about something, let's talk about who killed Randy. And I said, I believe you killed him. So tell them that. And she pulls out the police report and says that I'm not a witness. I'm not a, a suspect. And when she said that, I was angry. Mm -hmm. I wanted to jump across the table to get to her. In my conversations with Linda, she dismissed the idea of the photo album filled with insurance paperwork as absolute nonsense. Despite the opposing statements here, you can pretty much get the picture. That day at the funeral home, Sandra outright accused Linda of killing Randy. All of this, and the funeral is still ahead. On the day of the funeral, folks gathered together at a school gymnasium, which was the only place large enough to host this incredible number of people that had come to pay their respects. Randy's niece, Ashley, told me this. A very high, intense, emotional day. Um, the outpouring of just love from his friends and family. And it was, you know, you don't picture or you don't know the impact until you are like seeing everyone and will and you know I have never like I know my uncle knew a lot of friends or you know knew a lot of people but it was like people on top of people on top of people I was impressed by Ashley's candor and her ability to smile as she described to me that amidst the heart-wrenching sadness of the event that she was awestruck by the sheer number of people that had turned out. Basically, that it made her proud of who her uncle was. Randy Stevens had no children of his own. However, he acted as if he did. Brandy, Ashley, and Dee all expressed to me about his protective nature, his generosity, and his unwavering love for them. Brandy Trotter, Linda's daughter, called Randy dad. She told me this about his funeral. As we pulled up to the uh, school, um, quite naturally we got out of the family cars. Uh, the family sat on the, the basketball court of the auditorium because both sides of the auditorium were filled with people on top of, it was people standing outside to come in. 
Um, I sat in the front row with my mom. Dee, who was younger than the other two, spoke to me about how he was preparing to go into the funeral service. As I've mentioned before, Dee was just a little kid when this happened. And it's hard to see him now, a physically large grown man, recall almost as a child the moment it all became real for him. He saw his uncle's face on the funeral program and suddenly could not bear to enter the gym to the proceedings. For him, going inside would make it all true. And as he mentioned, it was a brutal reality. You remember that day? I don't think I can remember was getting in the limo from my grandmother's house, my grandparents' house, picking up the program and seeing my uncle's picture on it. And we was arriving to the place and they opened the door and that's all I can remember. Couldn't do it? Couldn't do it. Did it become real for you in those moments? Yeah, it was. I never seen my uncle again. The fact that it was, he's actually gone. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. If you remember Bobby Stevens' reaction to learning of his brother's death and at the same time having to inform his parents, that weight was almost unbearable. And for Sandra, the funeral was not only about her own sorrow, but the incredible weight of watching her parents bury their son. We got inside. Um, my parents, I've seen hurt before, but I've never seen hurt like that. As she watched the mourners file in, Sandra talks about seeing Randy's best friend, Carlos Wilkerson, inconsolable to the point where he actually needed help just to enter the room. Everybody was looking at the door, and it was Carlos. Carlos was actually brought inside Randy's funeral. It was two guys actually holding him up to bring him inside to sit down. Absolute sorrow. There are no other words for it. A beloved man murdered. Family and friends gathered for the last long goodbye. His widow, Linda, alone in the front row. And everyone is wondering, what has happened? What has happened. When I spoke to Linda about the funeral, she told me something that truly bothered me. Now, no matter what you think about this whole situation, you need to open your mind to the fact that Linda, who has not by any means been shown through evidence to be guilty, she was cleared by the detectives. She's sitting alone at her husband's funeral with the family sitting somewhere else believing that she is the perpetrator. She explained to me how lonely she felt and that the whole thing seemed a bit surreal and that it seemed so strange and sad. No matter what you believe, as Juror 13, this would be a sentence in itself and perhaps unjustly so. Here is Sandra explaining how the tension evidenced itself. My dad walked in because Linda walked in first her daughter Brandy and then she had a friend with maybe two female friends and it was enough room on that front row 
for my dad and my mom and for us to sit. And my dad could not sit on that front row next to her. And that, my friends, is a lonely place to be. And there it is. Even hours after the crime, opinions started to form about Linda. Now I'm going to ask you to do something. This is completely hypothetical. I know that as Juror 13, you've probably already formulated some ideas and or theories as to what may have happened and who may have done this. Outside of that, dispose of all the supposition based on the circumstances that you have heard and imagine this. The family sits together at the funeral, inconsolable, and they're already believing that Linda has done this. They see her in the front row. How does that make them feel? Now try this on for size. Imagine this. Linda sits in the front row alone. After witnessing her husband's murder, while the entire family sits near her, blaming her. Neither scenario is anything anybody wants. What I'm trying to show you is this. The police investigation, for some reason, originally focused on one theory and eliminated the idea of Linda as a suspect. The family focused only on the idea of Linda as a suspect. It's not workable either way. Consequently, it's unfair to both groups. What we need, perhaps, is a reassessment of the interviews, the original leads, and then combine them with any legitimate evidence that's come up in the meantime or some of the interviews we've done. Anything we can get from either group, it's something to consider. If you were attending the funeral of a murdered loved one and the suspect was attending the same funeral, would you be able to put your feelings aside for that day? Tell us what you think. Vote at Juror13.live. We've looked at and interviewed everyone that is close to this case. That is everyone that's still living. And we've looked at as much as we can at the methods and the findings of the original investigation. Now it's time to focus on what we can obtain and look into moving forward. One of the big questions is the issue of the box Chevy that was seen speeding away from the crime scene just after the murder. Tamargo says the suspects fled Bobby's home after the shooting, driving a 1980 four-door Chevy Capri with shiny hubcaps. I've explored every avenue I can to determine where that statement came from, where the media got that. Ms. Stevens indicated to me that the first officer on the scene was, quote, a middle-aged white guy, end quote. Based on the speed with which the officer arrived, I assumed he was the officer that the neighbors told me was stationed just outside the nearby school. Was it him that saw the Chevy? Was it him that told the media? Or maybe he told his superior and they told the media. Maybe it was the next guy, Officer Tony Townsend. Man, you gotta love this guy. Now, the only record I have of anyone being there initially is the preliminary report. 
That is signed by APO Tony Townsend. So I'm guessing he was there also within that initial time frame that the other middle-aged white officer was there. But unlike that other officer, I was able to locate Mr. Townsend in California. Mr. Townsend claimed to not have recollection of that particular report or incident. But I mean, why would he? It was only a home invasion murder of a city employee which took place at 6 a.m. outside of the school where he was stationed. Not to mention the fact that Sandra Stephen Smalls had stated to me that same Mr. Townsend had approached her at a church function years later with hat in hands, apologizing for not doing more at the scene. To jar his recollections of this event loose, I sent him copies of the report that he had written. It contained in its description the single scrawled line, quote, I reported to a shooting at 1923 Duval Street, unquote. He admitted it was his signature, but refused to speak with me any further. But who can blame him? Frankly, once you know that Mr. Townsend, now long out of law enforcement, was the subject of harsh media criticism in Savannah, especially for being disciplined or cited by the Savannah Police Department in well over 20 instances. I have a feeling that short of a subpoena, he's got no info or comments for anyone. Although it very well may have been Mr. Townsend who originally claimed that he had seen the Chevy speeding from the area of the crime scene, I really don't know for sure. Either way, it leads us to believe that it was someone in law enforcement at the scene who informed the press of this lead. Lately, it's come to light Two guys who were associates of the late, great Pascal Quarterman, a.k.a. Barry Green, owned just such a vehicle, a vehicle that was alleged to have been repainted within a short time after Randy's murder. I've attempted to call and locate both of those subjects, whose names are now known to me. Hopefully, we can get them to comment. Lastly... In terms of new evidence, Juror 13 has obtained the Georgia Bureau of Investigation's medical examiner's findings on the Randy Stevens' death by homicide. I'm working with some experts now to fully understand the findings and the how and why of the four bullet entry points and how far and at what angle the weapon was fired in relation to Randy. We will examine all of this information, plus the current leads that the cold case squad is working on and statements from that department regarding what's happening in the case in general. I hope that this episode proved insightful. Sometimes it helps to examine the nature of something before we construct our opinions. After all, who are we in these moments? Do we create our own justice or do we seek it? Do we cast stones or do we gather them? Surely, these are hard questions and harder still when you are the ones who are left behind in a tragic situation like this one. Above all, in this instance, just for this moment, remember Randy Stevens, a man taken in his prime whose mourners filled an entire gymnasium. 
This is real evidence. This is actual proof that his life was far more important than his death. I know I talked to you all about Crime Stoppers last week and the value that this tremendous anonymous program holds. The Randy Stevens case has a reward for $80,000. And I've stated that before. Everybody knows that now. There's $80,000 out there if you can help solve the case. I know that you are out there. I know that you are. I know that you're listening, and I know that you know something about this case. So take a good long look in the mirror and understand that there's a big difference between doing the right thing and snitching. So choose to do the right thing. The Stevens family needs your help. Click on Crime Stoppers logo or press play on the Crime Stoppers executive director, Brittany Heron's explanation of how to go about helping and collecting your reward. Hi, this is Tom Lady again. Um, this is something I hate to do, but it's something that's extremely necessary. We need to ask you for donations. Um, subscriptions are also very important, but if you can, we're trying to keep things up and running and move this case forward. And it's going to take a little bit of money, so I have to ask. Uh, you can find the links on the website, juror13.live. Thank you very much. Juror13.live. When the episode is over, the facts remain. Juror13.live. Photos, facts, and faces. See the people and the events that we talk about in every episode. Read opinions, reports, and theories. Vote on Juror13.live. You are Juror13. Interact with special guests on announced dates and post your opinions and surveys about certain people, places, and things associated with Juror 13. Download episodes. Join our first alerts list. Help us to help the Stevens family, folks. Remember, you can listen to new episodes of Juror 13 weekly on Spotify, or you can just listen to any past episode or update at any time you desire on Juror13.live. Juror 13 relies on your support. If you'd like to help us continue our mission to help the Stevens family, we gratefully accept any donation or contribution. Simply go to the website, juror13.live, and click on the links. Join me next week as we examine all of this and more on Episode 7. Until then, Juror 13 would like to thank Sandra Stevens-Smalls, Linda Stevens, Bobby Stevens, Brandy Trotter, Nathan D. Smalls, Ashley Roberson, WSAV-TV in Savannah, Maya Eschett, Virginia Gregg, Per Ubu for their theme music, and my invaluable producer, Martine Rothstein. As always, I'm Tom Milady, but you, you are Juror 13. Jura 13 is an Empty Nest Productions presentation.